I think they want the PR of being the Robin Hood of ransomwares. But my question is, who is Friar Tuck in this whole in this whole <laughs> adventure? Welcome to 30 Day InfoSec, a podcast that covers the last month of InfoSec happenings. This is your host, TJ. And Ryan, let's start the show. Hey everyone, this month Ryan could not make it, so I've asked my good friend Zach to jump in for this episode. And so without further ado, we will have him kick off with the first story about IoT. Hey TJ, thanks for having me. Um, so I, I found this pretty interesting article this uh, this month about some exposed IoT footage, right? So this article from HackRead talks about how there's nearly three terabytes of data that is being sold, uh, and I guess the key thing about it is it's private data, uh, private footage from uh, anywhere from like a ch- child's bedroom to uh, you know a bathroom, things like that. Um, and you know it's really interesting to me because you know we all have access to Shodan and you can see all kinds of crazy exposed IoT devices and webcams and stuff on Shodan, but this is actually like weaponizing or uh, you know building uh, extortion around that exposure, collecting it, uh, finding the the stuff that somebody would pay money for, um, archiving it and selling that, and so that's kind of extra scary to me. Uh, I just thought it was a really interesting article. Um, What do you think about that? Definitely. And I remember a lot of people got into, you know, their first foray into hacking was Google dorking, where you were able to identify and find webcams that were open just by doing Google searches. And then Shodan's just like a force multiplier for that stuff. So I bet you there's a ton of systems that are affected by that. Yeah. And now you've got someone that's, you know, figured out a way that they're going to profit off of it um, with that that most, you know, private and sensitive material. It's pretty scary stuff. So um, this is just a good reminder for everyone, you know, if you have a device like this to make sure that it's properly secured. Um, you know, if you're, it's, you know, cloud access, things like that. Uh, we remember the Ring hacks, I think, last year or the year before that. Um you know, just making making sure that those devices are as secure as possible. Um, yeah, definitely. And, yeah. I think there was three terabytes of data that was exposed and posted online for sale, right? Yeah, that's a ton of data, ton of footage. And it's really interesting because when you think about it, a lot of this stuff is table stake security. And just like with routers where uh, we were putting insecure routers into our environments because, you know, the Linksys's and the Netgears of the world, they didn't have, you know, the security measures that were beyond the default passwords that everyone knew uh, in place. And people were just not changing those things. I think that's the same problem that IoT is going to still face over the coming years, especially with like how big it's going to be, especially now that we have smart houses smart things everywhere uh, and intelligent devices that are helping us with, you know, things from cleaning our floors to letting us know when our timer's up. It's really, really important to have these table stake security mechanisms built into some of the systems that we use in our daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. 
So speaking of uh, some intimate, uh, you know, things that can affect us on the day to day, there's another interesting article. This one is from Gizmodo, and it talks about a security flaw in an API, basically a totally insecure API around a male chastity device. <laughs> so this device has no external mechanism to unlock or lock uh, the device, and it uses, I think it's like stainless steel, solid steel, uh, you know, when you uh, put it on. And so the only way to unlock it is through the application. Well, this application can be locked to basically brick the device so that it won't um, won't operate anymore, so you're kind of stuck in there. Um, and it can also... Uh, you know, it also exposes PII and other things like that. So just a wide open API for that. Um, so all the users' passwords and their emails and all that kind of stuff can be uh, gleaned off of that or scraped off of that API. It's kind of, that's pretty terrifying stuff. And if that's something that you're into, um, you know, now we've got IoT devices in, in the bedroom in more ways than one. Um, and this is just, can be uh, terrifying. I don't know about you, DJ. I would not want to be the guy that has to go to the hospital and explain uh, why I need help. Yeah, talk about a C block, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting because you you know we we do put technology in pretty much every facet of our lives nowadays, especially like just connected technology everywhere. It would have it made sense to have a manual mechanism to unlock this but apparently from reading the article if an attacker wanted to take control of this device and really like keep you locked up they can and from the make of that system like as you said stainless steel uh there's not much you can do to be unlocked from it so that's really really compromising for a lot of people who are using this device yeah, I don't like the idea of uh, an angle grinder anywhere near oh, no. me in that way. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how many ER visits have uh, been had from this. <laughs> yeah, your phone dies and you got to wait. Uh, this this is a terrible design, I, I think, in general. And then, um, yeah, the fact that it's publicly exposed, that's, that's just that's scary stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, on a more serious note, let's transition to some of the TrickBock news that was coming out as of recent. So there's been two disruptions, and, and I'm going to talk about two articles here that are somewhat related, but also different in uh, two respects. So the first one, Microsoft uses their trademark to actually try to take and disrupt some of the TrickBot infrastructure. And then the second one is a U.S. Cybercom actually conducting an attack to dismantle TrickBot infrastructure. Now, the interesting part about this is that if we go into it, these are two different entities, right? One's U.S. government, and then the other one is a private commercial business. And they're both taking different approaches. Looking at the Microsoft side of things in the Microsoft article, they're really saying TrickBot is basically damaging their their reputation as the operating system that most people use. And on that note, they should be able to seize resources that TrickBot uses in order to operate. And that's their impetus for being able to, you know, damage that infrastructure and and really help disrupt 
some of that operations. Now, U.S. Cybercom, on the other hand, they, you know, they're the U.S. government. And so they actually used the infrastructure to send disconnect commands to try to, and, and also load the botnet peer list to try to make sure that, you know, there's no, the attackers had a harder time regaining infrastructure and, and telling the, the bots that were infected where to actually go in order to connect back with their malicious command and controls that are under TrickBot control. Those are two big different approaches there. Both of them seem to have failed because uh, the, the attackers came back you know, pretty quickly right away. But it was really interesting to sort of hear the different approaches and that they were sort of separated but really connected because they did choose the same time frame, but they really took two different avenues legally and also tactically. Yeah, I, I kind of had me scratching my head. Uh, it's awfully coincidental for this not to be coordinated. Um, that that was interesting to me, uh, you know. And I, and I also found it interesting that I think even in the article uh, they talked about the Microsoft case of it being a trademark issue. It's kind of a weak case, <laughs> but um, you know, I think that they they really. Uh, the the judicial system wasn't going to push back on this because they recognize the the significance of the of trickbot um, just globally, not just only in the states. Um, I'm glad that Microsoft was able to get through it and make an impact. Um, but you know now we're seeing I mean just this weekend um, you know we're seeing kind of, kind of an uptick from trip. Trickbot activity, and they're talking about taking it out by increasing their ransom demands. Um, and while they had an impact, it seems like they recovered pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, I don't know if anyone will know for sure exactly the extent of the damage and the recovery. Um, but I'm interested to see in the few, you know, next few months and years, even uh, how this plays out. Are there further? Uh, attacks from you know microsoft and big companies like that or um is there retaliation from trickbot or other actors in the field um you know it's it's very interesting to see this uh yeah. interested to see how it plays out yeah and i want to dig into this whole you know trademark technique that microsoft used trademark and brands damage to trademark and brands was the impetus for being able to conduct this operation on uh, Microsoft side, because as you know, Microsoft is a private organization. They can't really act as like a military organization like U.S. Cybercom. Uh, they would have to really have authority to be able to do certain things, and that was, you know, ultimately granted by the East District of Virginia. And basically, it was through this brands and trademark. Uh, I guess tech, I guess tactic for them to to justify being able to to operate against these actors. Which I mean, I think we all agree that you know any operation against Trickbot uh, is helpful. I don't know if that could cause more damage or what the out uh, all like the overall impact against Trickbot that 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 may have, or at least you know maybe Trickbot comes back even harder, which you know. CISA had a, just a recent report that there may be more targeting for hospitals because of uh, TrickBot over the past week. 
but really just it, it opens up a lot of things in my mind of companies just going well they were talking bad about me and they were pro- they're causing extreme damage to my brand can i go hack back <laughs> like that type of thing yeah. which i mean it may open up a lot of doors for a lot of companies to use this and and really have a vehicle to i guess have that hack back type uh activity go on i know that microsoft's been involved with many other takedowns uh usually they are actually just doing a like domain takeover and and really helping out from that standpoint from what i read uh from their takedown reports but uh this one was i think different because of the fact that they went about this this defense for their actions yeah and you, you know it's it's interesting so you mentioned the is a report um and trick bots there have been some ransomware groups some threat actor groups in the past that uh i don't remember the exact hospital or country but there was a hospital that was attacked um and they basically kind of desperately reached out to the threat actor and said look um you're you're putting patient lives at risk uh you know i think there was one person in, in particular that was in the middle of surgery or something along those lines um when they got ransomware and the threat actor said oh okay we're we're out we're not going to get involved we're not going to play with lives and they released like sort of a public statement saying as much um trickbot i think is demonstrating clearly that they don't have any qualms uh playing that game because they're specifically targeting hospitals and medical treatment facilities according to CISA. so that's that's kind of a uh, ups the ante a little bit ups the risks with this group uh in particular um, and then in general, yes, you know, we see domain takedowns and we see t- typo squatting and all this kind of stuff, but it almost feels like opening Pandora's box a little bit um, because, I, I mean, by that, the, the whole like, oh, it's affecting my brand image, I, I could almost see like then any company who is uh, used to fish, whether it's a big company like, you know, claiming somebody claims to be an Amazon billing department or something, um, or, you know, the construction company that gets internally fished, uh, they could say, hey, this damages my brand. I want to hack back. And I can. So I don't know. I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. It feels like Pandora's box to me a little bit, though. I, I mean, I think that that was that that whole hack back from private sector has been a ongoing debate. And a lot of times I think that it is a a group effort in order to operate against a lot of these attackers. I mean, they they have a distributed and organized network that allows them to operate in a manner that is really scalable. Uh, it is highly impactful and dynamic, right? They bounce back pretty quickly. I mean, they they basically took an attack from two superpowers, right? Microsoft and the U.S. government, U.S. Cybercom. And they were able to bounce back, you know, fairly quickly. Uh, that is, you know, not a, like, that's, that's not a trivial thing to do, at, at least in my mind. So it's interesting to, to 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 hear like you know these private sector like the, people have always been having these these debates of whether private sector should be able to operate uh, against these attackers beyond just the defense and response efforts that most private sector organizations will conduct and it's it's really interesting because I think we may have gotten a little bit of a taste of there and we're still seeing that like I think that both sides should probably come together and, and try to formulate a, a better, a broader strategy. I think that when we see the takedowns that are pretty effective, 
you know, there's a multi-tiered approach. You have to, you know, put put cuff, the handcuffs on hands. You have to take down infrastructure and seize infrastructure. And then you have to address the victims that are already infected through, you know, your telemetry and what you've seen from that environment. So, you know, you have to take those three tiers and hit it at the same time, just like with instant response. Like, that's what you do is you take a survey of what's going on and then you try to make a multi-tiered approach in order to prevent, you know, the escalation of damage, the lateral movement of the attacker, and a re-entry of the attacker. And and so I think if we move towards that, I, I, I think that these efforts would be better in the long run. But I, I also think that it's weird that one organization, and I know that they worked with telecom and other technical organizations to sort of work through this, which is a lot of what they do previously, but really taking it upon themselves to sort of go after a, a uh, I mean, an organized attacker. I think it was really interesting just to hear that story and see see the outcome of it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the next article that we have uh, today is from CNN, actually, and it's kind of similar. It has you know global impacts like this, um, and it's something that I think we all suspected or knew. Um, and it's basically, so the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, has confirmed that Iran and Russia have stolen voter registration information from the from the U.S. Um, and I think this is something that sort of everybody knew, um, but wasn't necessarily publicly uh, accepted or, or acknowledged by the U.S. government. Um, but you know, now we have the confirmation. Uh, we know that this happened in 2016. Um, we know that this voter registration information is stolen, and that's really interesting because we're doing, uh, as a as a country, not just certain states or districts, um, you know, mail-in voting and just kind of new methods, at least new to some places. And so it's really interesting to see um, how that you know the fact that it was taken. Um, you know, there's new avenues, so to speak, that at least in my mind kind of make me nervous about how is it going to be abused or is it going to be abused and how would we detect that and, and everything. Um, and what's also interesting that this article talks about specifically is that they're using that information to target um, and send uh, sort of election phishing. I don't know if you'd call it phishing per se, um, but like intimidation emails, for example, um, a bunch of registered voters were sent an email from info at officialproudboys.com. The Proud Boys, as I understand it, are um, a group of, uh, of fans of, of the president. And um, so I guess this is a, this is an intimidation technique where they're coming up with this officialproudboys.com email uh, and sending out um, uh, you know emails with language like vote vote for Trump or else. Uh, I guess it's intended to to threaten or to try to scare these voters away from voting for the president. So you're going to get two things, right? You're going to get some people that are genuinely scared by that, um, and then I think more prevalently you're going to find people that see this and it actually is going to really mar um, the image of the president um, and withholding any comments about any other ongoings in this specific incident. Um, you know, this is not something that they really, anybody has any control over. Um, I, I just, I find it interesting. Um, 
to have that confirmation from the government and then to see it being used in threatening methods. Um, yeah, and I mean, and people were actually getting this, and it was directly directly affecting you know the u.s population and that's kind of the thing you know beyond the politics of everything you know you have foreign nations that are truly working on disinformation campaigns and if this is not proof of that then i don't know what else would be and you know it's it's kind of scary because you're seeing you know you you see a lot of this stuff uh a lot of the the efforts for interference in many ways from some of the larger nations uh such as you know russia and china and like i, I mean we've, we've been hearing about you know com- cyber conflicts between western nations and and these entities for a while but uh it's really interesting to see like how the disinformation playbook has really been adopted by many many different countries so you know having the iran iranian involvement here is kind of scary because you see like every now it's I, I i would probably say that any country could use this tactic to influence any other country and it's a legitimate way to gain influence in a foreign nation that goes into this gray area where you're not having a direct uh i guess a direct motion or a movement towards an act of war but you are you are having you know you are doing things that you know could really interfere with their day-to-day lives and in and, and the lives of their citizens especially you know like threatening citizens on behalf of a far-right group right that is something that hits very close to home for a lot of people in the united states and so it's very very interesting to see that like especially you know countries like iran and stuff like that taking this tactic on and it actually being able to conduct this right they got the voter registration information they were they knew enough about the background in the u.s politics the geopolitical situations in the western hemisphere in order to develop and execute a plan to cause a scare tactic against you know the foreign nation that's pretty pretty mature from a disinformation and, and psyops standpoint yeah it, it it kind of uh smells of like cold war era tactics almost uh the propaganda because uh you know really regardless of they whether or not they have a preferred candidate or what have you um they're going to win either way. They're going to get what they want because if the preferred candidate gets more attention, then that's cool. If not, either way, they're causing chaos and division. Um, and it's just, it's um, very interesting to see how without a lot of, uh, you know, technique or, or delicate, um, a delicate touch or anything like that, uh, it can be so fa- effective. Um, and I think we can appreciate the challenges that these states, um, you know, the IT and security departments of these states and these, you know, small counties and things like that, uh, the challenges and burdens that they're put under to try to collect and secure all those data, um, you know, we can appreciate that. Um, 
you know, there are some states that are getting hit repeatedly uh, and having this this information stolen. Um, and that's something that, we, you know, we as a nation, um, I think, are always pushing for is, you know, for, for better funding and better education in those those government sectors um, so that we don't see this data stolen because, you know, it's considered a civic duty to to vote. Um, and that so it's almost like forcing your hand to expose your data to have your voice heard and exercise that right. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely really interesting from that standpoint and really, really scary. I mean, honestly, the, I don't know any, you know, small town electoral office, election office that will be able to, you know, put themselves up against, you know, nation states. I mean, large companies have trouble with this, so it's it's a big ask for a lot of different organizations. And you know, it costs these. You know, it, it costs a little bit of dev, a little bit of bandwidth, and you know, you have your own cyber cyber attack. Like that's that's the interesting part about it is that we're in this era where cyber warfare can really cause effect, and I think that is probably the biggest thing that I got out of this is that, you know, I think that cyber cyber warfare is the great equalizer between nations. Cause you're not talking about, you know, military spending in so far as, you know, buying planes, buying weapons and all that stuff. It's really just, you know, smart people, a little bit of dev time and a little bit of infrastructure, and you can really cause a lot of damage. I think uh, one thing, interesting here is that there's another article where the UK actually said that it would carried out secret cyber attacks on Russia in retaliation for some of the uh, interference that they've done in the past. And they noted that they actually caused more damage than they thought they could have from their, their efforts, which is super interesting because one, you have someone, a former uh, British national security officer, who recently retires and, you know, exposes this. And then two, you know, you hear about all of these type of cyber, secret cyber operations that happen from, you know, the different hemispheres. So getting a little bit of insight on those things is really always interesting for for me. Yeah, you, you. it's kind of funny. I guess if you think about Russia, they're probably reading an article like this and saying, well, yeah, why do you think we do it all the time? It's, it's super effective. Um, but it's so interesting to hear, uh, again, a kind of a government – well, I, I don't suppose he was representing the government at that time, but um, you know, kind of someone acknowledging from the inside that they attacked back. They talked about it in these specific attacks. He was in retaliation for uh, the poisoning of a double agent, uh, Sergei Kripal, um, and that specific poisoning with a, a nerve agent that I'm sure was pretty horrendous uh, was kind of what spawned this this friendly hacking back. Um, it's it's it, we I think again we all know that this happens. Um, you know, it's it's that gray space between, uh, you know, peace and war, uh, a direct kinetic strike versus, you know, uh, nation state subterfuge and, uh, you know, kind of information and espionage and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
but it's, it's it's interesting to see acknowledgement you don't see very often on the world stage um you know naming specific attribution because a lot of times attribution can, can be difficult in in general uh terms but this was due to a kinetic action with the poisonings and responded um through a cyber uh you know kind of intelligence um ac- action or activity uh really crazy stuff to hear about um frankly uh, i am not opposed to it not against it and i i think that we it's going to be a snowball you know we're going to continue to see more and more of this activity on both sides russia and everybody else has been doing it for a long time i'm sure we've been doing it for a long time um the tao and all that kind of stuff um but uh you know i i i like to hear open acknowledgments of it and i like to read about that it's all very always very interesting yeah me. uh they actually like a quote from that article is pretty pretty interesting it says uh russia is operating in what aficionados call a gray space that gap between normal state relations which would be your typical spyware uh spy espionage type stuff and armed conflict which is you know the actual act of actioning against another country from a military conflict standpoint and with cyber attacks and information warfare and disruption campaigns those sort of fill that gap and we don't really know at this point where that, like how, what each type of action cyber wise, where that falls within that gray space. Like, is it more state relations? Or are you just trying to, you know, get a little bit of intel on your friendlies and, and foes? Or are you actually really trying to uh, disrupt and, 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 you know, ultimately destroy pieces of an of a you know adversary nation and that's that's really i think over the next decade and certainly over the next couple years we are going to really have to reckon with where that line falls where it's okay this is a this is a serious attack that you know is an act of war and this is something that we need to just business as usual between nation states yeah that's a that's a great great point business as usual because this kind of espionage is thousands of years old right um it's been going on forever and it's always i I guess it's it's probably a, a a matter of tolerance you know you're kind of always towing that line how much can we get away with how much um mud can we sling without upsetting someone enough to declare something formally or publicly right um because there's always that you know when when you announce something has happened from an adversary uh you know you're going to expose yourself a little bit as well uh and i I think in the modern age with the easy access to you know commercial organizations you know businesses and the economic impacts that that can hold especially at scale you know how many how many billions are we talking about ransomware alone being responsible for costing the the global economy um it's it's really interesting because you're you, you know you're not out and out attacking a country but you in a roundabout way you're definitely attacking a country um by you know targeting the economy um it's interesting very interesting yeah thought. and hold that thought because the next article i want to talk about here is where uh, the NSA actually names the top 25 vulnerabilities that are used by 
Chinese threat actors. And the thing about this is that, you know, some of this falls in line with that whole gray area on where everything falls here. So the the basis of the story is that the NSA published, you know, they, they do and they collect a lot of telemetry and they work with a lot of uh, industry partners to identify, you know, different uh, threats to the U.S. And so when the, with this, you know, they're trying to collect volumes of data and they say, you know, 25 vulnerabilities are primarily scanned and exploited by Chinese nation state attackers which is really interesting. And the most interesting thing about it that I can pull down is that a lot of these vulnerabilities are patchable. So like vulnerability management program (laughs) and patch management program is probably the most important thing that you could do to protect yourself from this type of activity. Uh, Because the top one is the Pulse Secure VPN, which is patch. Uh, There's Blue Keep is still on that list. Sig Red, which is, you know, from earlier this year, you have the net logon, which is a pretty recent as well. But there, there's a lot of things here that are, you know, they should be addressed and with a proper up-to-date system should not have an effect in which these are the top exploits or the top vulnerabilities that are exploited by a nation state or a threat actor from a different nation. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the uh, the old adage about, you know, how do you outrun a bear? You just have to be faster than the other guy. Um, because a lot of times these these groups are just looking for – these are 25 low-hanging fruit in most cases. I mean, one of these CVEs is from 2015, for goodness sake. That's a five-year-old CVE. Um, that – five years, you have no business not, uh, not having – gone through your change management and patched if it's a month or two there's sometimes those reasonable just real world business cases five years does not fall in that category um and these are you know it's just it's so um it makes me cringe you know (laughs) inside to hear about this um but you know in, in my day job um current and past you know i'm sure you do as tj we we both see these types of things, these types of like, oh yeah, you know, we're looking at your firewall. It's uh, it's two years out of date. Uh, that's that's why you're experiencing this incident or this attack that you have. Uh, you know, you're now paying a hundred thousand dollar ransom on or what have you. Um, yeah. And for yeah. the the sysadmins that are like, oh, but my systems are all patched. What about your industry partners? You know, they're gonna get compromised. Then the attacker gets a foothold in their network. They can work on, you know, under the impetus of being your industry partner and try to work their way into your environment from there. We've seen this with phishing, right? Uh, We see this with a lot of intrusions. If there's a trust relationship between uh, domains, you know, if there's connection partners, they can use email. And there's a lot of different vectors to move within a trust relationship between various organizations that will expand their ability to operate and that is one of the scariest things about having all these patches be something that are constantly being scanned for and exploited is that you have to make sure that not only you are protected but everybody you deal with is protected and even in some cases everyone that they deal with outside of there is protected because you need to have those layers of security now because 
scanning is easy. And then building an exploit on things you know that are vulnerable, that's even easier. I mean, these are these are things that we, I feel like, have a solution for. And it's really just making sure that patch management and vulnerability management programs are up to speed with what's going on in the environment and really just being capable of of blocking these low-hanging fruits. Yeah, absolutely. So um, speaking of, you know, exposed vulnerabilities and um, some new and some old, uh, the next article we have um, is from a guy named Sam Curry. Uh, I'm sure that some of our listeners have heard about this at, th- at this point, um, but this is a young guy. He's a security researcher um, with a team of four others, uh, and they were participating in Apple's bug bounty program. And they spent three months in Apple's environment uh, and found 55 vulnerabilities, 11 critical and 29 high severity. Um, And so some of these allowed things like iCloud accounts being able to be accessed and changed um, and just various levels of compromise of data and things like that. Um, And their total payout that they're expecting is about a half a million dollars, which I think is pretty fair um you know a good good chunk of change in three months for five or six guys um but that's that's a tremendous amount Uh, that's a really short time i think i think they moved quickly to come up with that um which i don't know if these are particularly complex um uh you know or difficult compromises um but that's it's this is significant i mean apple is uh it's like that's like a microsoft or or a google um you know they make this whole line of hardware uh, several lines of hardware i should say and um you know are kind of the go-to standard you know depending on the crowd that you uh that you move about in um this is this is a wild article and very interesting the good news out of it is that apple um has been very responsive uh they are paying out and they are applying fixes so they're taking it seriously um which is unfortunately uh it seems like half the time organizations don't pay attention to their own bug bounty programs if they have one at all so i am uh you know glad to see apple um, really making use of this thing and and and, and applying those changes uh, in a responsible timeline. Yeah, definitely. And I got three three things out of this article. I really love this article, by the way. So the Sam hats to you. You you actually explained it very well. And the first thing from this article that I like to point out is that the they went through their methodology deep enough where you could sort of get the idea of like what their attack plan was. You know, they had two people break out and do scanning and sort of do their reconnaissance work of enumerating infrastructure. And they were able to give you sort of a glimpse into what they were seeing and, and how they went about targeting different portions of the Apple infrastructure. That is amazing. And then they sort of walk through their attack plans for, you know, the vulnerabilities that they were allowed to publish at this point in time, I think they found 55 or so vulnerabilities in total, and and they currently got approved for 30 something of them. That's pretty awesome for a team of five to be able to like work together and like really coordinate there. I think we have a glimpse of a lot of uh, a lot of threat actor type uh, TTP from like a how do you go about and try to identify you're targeting a specific 
entity, how do we try to find those vulnerable portions that we can use to start building building a a uh, a pathway for access? And the second point is, this is Apple. This is not a small company. This is a big company with a lot of resources and a really great security team. And so if there's anything that I learned from this, you know, you can be a juggernaut and you can still have a lot of vulnerabilities still hanging out there. I'm sure that the bug bounty program for Apple is getting hammered all the time. And they sort of were just like, all right, we're going to give this time here and we're going to just go and look at some stuff. And they found 55 things. That means that like if I looked at a company that probably is not up to speed with their security. So something like a company that just doesn't have that security focus, um, which I believe Apple has a pretty strong security focus, that would be scary <laughs> to see like how many vulnerabilities someone would be able to find from their infrastructure. Uh, and I mean, sometimes in my day job, I get to get a viewpoint of that. And it is kind of scary to see like how many pathways into an organization that attackers can have. Uh, and then the last thing is really just... Uh, understanding the 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 work of trying to break up access based off of various uh, I guess like parts of your infrastructure. So some of the things that they compromised was the Apple's uh, Distinguished Educators program and things along those lines. Where you're like, all right, well, you know that's not the crown jewels, but you can start reading through this and like identifying that like there are little holes in various places of their infrastructure that you could probably pivot social engineer your way into stronger, stronger and more secure areas and then work your way into, you know, getting to those crown jewels over time, especially a well-resourced and motivated attacker, such as a nation state or a threat actor organization that is really focused on that end goal. I mean, I think that it really does shed light on these. These bug bounty programs are awesome because they really, you know, I'd rather Apple get put, uh, get uh, escalated to by these guys versus, you know, hearing, you know, two months down the road that a bunch of iCloud data was pulled and moved over to a foreign nation or something along those lines. So it's really interesting. And, and I, I really like this article a lot. So for our last article, I wanted to talk about a little bit of good that came out of the dark side of the internet. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, in bleak, in this bleeping computer article, we saw that Darkside Ransomware pledged to donate $20,000 of his extortion money to chari charities. And they actually did it. They actually posted the receipts there. So what happened here was... Uh, the dark side ransomware group basically sent out a press release in like sort of a, you know, we're trying to make the world a better place type uh, fashion where they said they're going to donate $10,000 to children international and then also the water project. And then they posted the receipt of their payment from their Bitcoin to their, their, their uh, extortion blog. And, you know, everything sort of checks out as far as I know. Uh, it's really interesting just to see that these uh, these attackers are, I guess, trying to do PR, a nice little press release or something along those lines. Uh, they typically, when they're, they're actually conducting their extortion, 
they're charging the victim somewhere between 200 to 200,000 to 2 million for the decryption key. So $20,000 is a really small portion of that, uh, just so that everyone's sort of aware. But it was interesting that they were trying to, you know, get some sort of good graces. I'm not sure where that where that falls in line with being good or bad or not. Uh, I do know that uh, Children International said that they are investigating the donation internally. And if they find it to be linked to hacking activity, they're not going to accept the donation. Any thoughts yeah. on that, Zach? Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of lot to pull out here. So um, it is interesting to to think about the ethical and moral, um, I guess, complex uh, question here around uh, accepting the money, right? It's, it's almost like these dark side folks uh, see themselves as a veritable. Uh, uh, Robin Hood, you know, sort of thing, um, stealing from Prince John. Uh, and so these groups, uh, you know, at least the Children International has said, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to take this money. Um, and then, you know, you never really know if they're going to take it or not. Um, if they say they won't, and then they will anyways. Um, <clears throat> but it's it's just crazy to me, like it's a peek into the psyche of some of these these uh, these threat actors, because they for whatever reason, you know, they think that they're washing away their sins, so to speak, uh, by, you know, giving a, I mean, out of a multi-million dollars in ransom, uh, you know, 10 grand, 20 grand is not a lot. So it's not like they're saying, Hey, you know, we're giving half of our earnings or even a 10th of our earnings. It's some insignificant attempt at PR or, or kind of trying to, uh, make themselves feel better. It's just, it's very weird to me. Uh, it, it, it almost makes it feel slimier, I think. Um, and I'd be interested to see kind of what the take is. Uh, and also in, in for like, these are both American based, um, organizations. Like what is, what is the FBI and what, what do, uh, what does the government have to say about such donations? Um, you know, would they intervene and do something with the money, you know, uh, property claims or something like that? Uh, I, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Um, I mean, I suppose it's better than, better than not giving to charity. Um, but it still doesn't rub me the right way and almost feels like they're trying to make them feel, make themselves feel better for the, the theft and, um, the impact that they're having on these organizations. Yeah. And it's weird because, you know, they donated via Bitcoin. And so I don't know where that money would go, uh, after that, like there, there's no, I don't think child children internationals can't just like, I mean, they, I guess they could send the money back to the Bitcoin address, but then I, <laughs> I feel like that would be even worse because then they're actually uh, getting the money back. So I'm not sure how that would all play out from there, but yeah. it, it's interesting. I mean, they do definitely want to go. I think they want the PR of being the Robin Hood of ransomwares. But my question is, who is Friar Tuck in this whole in this whole <laughs> adventure? Who is their yeah. moral? Who is their moral compass? And uh, or a slightly immoral compass that's sort of showing them this way. It's really interesting just because $20,000 out of 200 K is really not a lot. And if they were, I think being a little bit more, I guess, uh, I guess philanthropist, uh, philanthrop like they were more philanthropic about this whole situation. 
I think they would probably have donated half their earnings. That would make sense. Or even going about uh, just, you know, donating all their earnings. I'm not sure they would want to do that. But, you know, some larger portion, I think that would have been a little bit better from a PR standpoint. Yeah. But I'm you pretty know, sure the FBI is still going to be going after them pretty hard. <laughs> well, you know who I don't envy in this this whole thing is the giving block. So that's the organization that they use to um, to pass the currency do- donation donations through. Um, and I guess the giving block is designed to allow cryptocurrency donations and kind of mixes it to you know across wallets to to conceal that original source, which I think from a a, a individual let's say millionaire that wants to contribute and uh i don't know maybe it's something that could be politically charged and they don't want to be seen associated with that but they still want to donate or blah 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 right that's fine and that's what the giving block is there for um that's a that's a not a bad you know bad organization to have available to you but uh now they're in the middle of their service being used for uh for this you know there's lots of other wallets and traders out there um that refuse to conduct any kind of trades or sell cryptocurrency bitcoin whatever um for like the payment of a ransom for example and so is the giving block going to have to somehow authenticate are they going to be get more oversight from the fbi is it going to kind of spoil the the pot for everybody um that i i don't uh, I don't envy the position that they're now going to be placed in. I would hope the giving block would be, you know, vetting at least the recipients of the money. Honestly, the the where the money comes from, I don't know if they're really going to they're going to care about it. But you know, if you're funding a non, I guess, uh, legitimate organization, that would probably be a problem. But I think that uh, I think that they do have. I'm I'm almost sure that they have some sort of mechanism to that's the end uh recipient versus you know just sending money like being a you know an escrow account for any type of transaction so i think that makes it a little bit better i mean it's still not like it's still not the the best right but uh, i think that makes it a little bit better so to end it out here zach and thank you for joining me uh let's talk about the events that are coming up in november on the 9th, we have Black Hat Europe 2020. On the 18th, we have OSDFCon, which is the Open Source Digital Forensics Con. And if you're into autopsy, this is the place to be. And then rounding it out on the 19th, we have the Cybersecurity and Data Protection Summit on November 19th. So we have a fair amount of events in November. Most of these are going to be virtual. So uh, I'd love for you guys to all attend and see some people from other parts of the community. And once again, Zach, thank you for jumping in and helping us out here. And I'll talk to everyone next month. Thank you. Thanks guys. for having me, TJ. Thanks for joining us on 30 Day InfoSec. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also connect with us at 30dayinfosec.com.